We're going to sing number 33 in a few minutes from that burgundy hymnal, the old school hymnal. The first verse begins with words that combine what I taught you this morning with what I want to teach you tonight. In songs of sublime adoration and praise, ye pilgrims for Zion who press, break forth and extol the great Ancient of Days, His rich and distinguishing grace. Amen. That is the assurance of our salvation, Brother Matthew. You got up tonight and spoke about assurance of salvation. That's our assurance, rich and distinguishing grace. But let's ask ourselves three questions and get some answers from the Word of God. What is grace? How is it rich? How is it distinguishing? Three questions in a few minutes. I need your help to turn in the Word of God and answer those three questions. Let's go to Romans 4 and verse 4. Our first question is, what is grace? What is grace? Grace is what you need to get out of the fix you're in. Grace is kindness done to you by another that owes you punishment and rejection. Grace is not unmerited favor, as the effeminate Christian world wants to tell us, and as I've always tried to teach you, because someone taught me a long time ago, grace is not unmerited favor, grace is demerited favor. It's just not that we're neutral before God, we deserve His punishment. And instead of the punishment, He gives us glory by His grace. If it was unmerited favor, then we would be neutral before God. And we are not neutral. I am not neutral in the sight of God in my flesh. I am a child of wrath and a vessel of wrath even as others. It's demerited favor. Grace is a free gift without any debt or obligation in it from God. Look at Romans 4 and verse 4. And we can't spend long on each verse. We just need to pick up what we want this time around. Romans 4, 4, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. See, grace and debt are opposites. God doesn't owe us grace. God doesn't owe us eternal life, and we can do nothing to obligate him to give us that. He owes us eternal condemnation because those are the wages for the sins that we've committed. There is no debt or obligation in grace. Grace is freely given. God doesn't owe us anything. Let's look at 6.23. I just referred to it. For the wages of sin is death. We've sinned. We've earned wages. God's the paymaster. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's grace. He owes us death. He gives us eternal life. That is grace. What is grace? It's God giving us the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve punishment. He gives us everlasting life. Amen. Look at Romans 11. Look at Romans 11. The words of the Bible are precise words. Mm-hmm. And works and grace are opposites. Amen. Romans 11 verse 5. Even so then at this present time also... There is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then is it no more of works? 
Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace? Otherwise, work is no more work. What does that mean? Grace and works are opposite and mutually exclusive. If they can ever be blended in any way at all, then grace is no longer grace and work is no longer work because by the definition of those two terms, they are opposites and mutually exclusive. We're answering the question, what is grace? Grace is the opposite of works. Grace is the opposite of debt or obligation. God owes us death. He gives us, by grace, eternal life. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Did you know that grace can be frustrated? Yes. But we don't want to frustrate grace in this church. Amen. All the rest, most of the rest of the churches in this country want to frustrate grace by adding any degree of works to grace. If you mix any conditions or works with grace, you frustrate the grace of God. Look at the verse. Galatians 2, 21. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. The law and grace are opposites. And the Galatians were trying to blend them. And Paul said that is frustrating the grace of God. It makes it vanity. It makes the death of Christ to have been in vain. Because the two don't go together. Grace is a gift given freely, without obligation, without any works on your part. Freely bestowed. When you deserve the opposite, God gives you the best. Grace. We want to answer the question, what is grace? Look at chapter 5 and verse 4. Here's another example of what happens if you let any works come in to grace. Christ has become of no effect unto you whosoever of you are justified by the law. Ye are fallen from grace. You bring any work in any works, any works of Moses' law, any works of Arminian decisional salvation, and you've fallen from grace. Because grace is God bestowing it freely without any obligation, debt, conditions, performance, works, or otherwise. And the minute you bring any of those things in and try to add them to the grace of God, you have fallen from grace. You have fallen from the proper understanding and knowledge of the grace of God because it is entirely God giving you the opposite of what you deserve. Look at Hebrews 13.9. I wanted all of these. What is grace? Hebrews 13.9. The Apostle Paul wrote these Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back under the law of Moses, and he said, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Don't be trying to add to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostolic faith. Don't be pulling in elements of Moses' law to include in it. Don't be carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Mm -hmm. The hearts of God's elect are to be established. The bedrock for our faith is salvation by grace alone. And we're not to let any other doctrines come in and corrupt it. That is our bedrock. Grace. Let the heart be established with grace. And don't be worrying about meats, whether they're acceptable or not, or doctrines that bring in conditions for man to add to grace. 
Because your heart then isn't established in grace. It's established in a mixture, and the mixture is nothing but frustrated grace and vain grace. You have fallen from the apostolic grace. So when we say the rich and distinguishing grace of God, we had to ask the question, what is grace? Grace is God giving to us freely the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve hell. He gives us heaven. We deserve eternal punishment. He gives us eternal life. We are the sons of the devil, and he should have left us there. He makes us the sons of God. That is grace, and he does it all by himself. He is not under obligation to any man or to all men to save any. He saved for his own honor and glory, and that is grace. How is it rich? Is it rich? Yes. Can we sing that song and mean it? That we ought to extol the great ancient of days for his rich grace? Psalm 71. Psalm 71. Oh, is it rich? Is the grace of God rich? How is it rich? Well, here's, here's how David tried to put it into words. And David was one of the more eloquent men in the Bible. Here's what he said in Psalm 71 and verse 15. My mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day. For I know not the numbers thereof. It's not quantifiable. Now how rich is that? You know what? Bill Gates can be quantified. Give me a few minutes in his portfolio, and I'll figure out how rich he is. You know, we can sit down with a calculator and calculate how rich Bill Gates is, but how rich is grace? I know not the numbers thereof. That's David in his eloquence saying, I don't know how to count it up, so I'm going to talk about it all day long. And that's the grace of God that we're coming to celebrate tonight at the Lord's table. Now, you brethren are Gentiles. Do you know you don't come from the same family as David, Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ? Then you better turn with me to Acts 15.11, because we better find out if grace, that grace that gives eternal life when we deserve eternal death, we need to find out if that grace is rich enough to save us Gentiles. And there's a council at Jerusalem taking place in Acts 15, and the question is, how are the Gentiles saved? And here's what the Jews said. And what Jews were speaking? The apostles and the elders. Listen to what they said in Acts 15.11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Now are you with me? The Jewish apostles are saying, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we trust that our salvation is as sure as that of the Gentiles. It's reversed for our comfort. Mm -hmm. The the apostles were hoping there was enough grace, and they were trusting that there was in the Lord Jesus Christ that they would be saved like we are saved. Acts 15.11. Is it rich? It got us Gentiles. You better be thankful to God for that. How about 18.27? Acts chapter 18, verse 27. This is Apollos. He's at Ephesus. Aquila and Priscilla teach him the way of God more perfectly, and they send him to Corinth in Achaia. 
And here's what it tells us. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. If you believe the gospel tonight, it is through grace that you believe it. You would not otherwise believe it. You would despise it and count it a thing foolish. And you would reject it and hate it. But God, through grace, has entirely not taken you from a state of neutrality toward the gospel, but enmity toward the gospel, and given you a heart to believe it and love it. They believe through grace. You know, what is the whole city teaching tonight? You believe for grace. The Bible says believe through grace. And that's what's made the difference. See, if it was believed for grace, that's putting God under obligation. And there is no obligation in grace. It's free. Right. And we believe because of grace. And it tells us that. I hope you know that grace is rich. Or you wouldn't be here tonight believing these things. Romans 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to get used to your Bible tonight, aren't we? You're going to know the New Testament. Roman, because what do you think it's all about? The gospel of the grace of God. Amen. You think there's a little bit about it in the book of Romans? Amen. You guessed right. Romans 3.24 Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justification. To be justified and accepted in the sight of God. I'm condemned. How can God accept me? Job asked, way back in the book of Job, how can a man then be just before God? That's the biggest question we have to answer. How can a man be just? Justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's how it's done. Freely by His grace and Jesus Christ redeeming us on the cross of Calvary from the law of God and its demands that we die, Jesus bought us back. Romans 3.24 How rich is it? It justified us freely through the redemption of Christ Jesus. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 16. These Romans were being tempted to incorporate the laws of Moses along with grace. As were the Galatians. And here's what Paul summarizes with in verse 16 after he's talked at length about Abraham. He said, Therefore it is of faith. That is how we lay hold of it for our conscious understanding of it. That is how we prove that we have it by laying hold of it by faith and working with that faith. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. Salvation and justification are truly by grace. We lay hold of it By faith. That's how we believe it, understand it, prove it, make it obvious that we are the justified ones. When Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, that's not when he became righteous. He was already righteous, but that's when it showed that he was righteous because he believed God. And that was the evidence of his righteousness. That's in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. You know, 99.9% of the world believes that Abraham was justified in Genesis 15:6, I wonder why the man was worshiping God with Melchizedek in Genesis 14. 
I wonder why he was building altars and worshiping God and having God accept his sacrifices in Genesis 13. I wonder why he left Ur of the Chaldeans to follow God to a land he didn't know where he was going in Genesis 12. Therefore, it is of faith. It's proven and shown by faith that it might be by grace. The actual medium of justification is by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That means, see, Abraham had faith before he was circumcised. Do you know what that verse is saying? God's done it by grace so that circumcised and uncircumcised people can all be saved with absolute certainty and not a single one get lost, including Jews and Gentiles. And that's what the verse is teaching. And it's by a system of faith that we recognize, lay hold of, and prove that we're justified, not by the law of Moses. That's the verse. But it's by grace. It's by grace. And you know what's so rich about the grace? Remember, every verse that we're looking at, you've got to ask the question, how does this verse tell me it's rich? That it might be sure to all the seed. What if God left even 1% of it dependent on our faith? 1% of it dependent on our works. Don't ask me about my eternal destiny if there's even 1% dependent on me. Are you with me? It's rich so that it can be sure to all the seed circumcised, uncircumcised, Jew, Gentile, everyone will be saved, not one lost. It's rich. It's rich. 5.15 Romans 5.15 Two Adams are being compared. Were there a lot of similarities between the first Adam and the second Adam so that Paul could write as by Even so, yes. But are there some dissimilarities? Yes. And do you know what are in the dissimilarities? The richness of grace. Look at this. Verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. We got some dissimilarities. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the gift of grace, the much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Here we're comparing the two persons. We've got Adam versus the Son of God. Which one is richer? The Son of God. If Adam was able to condemn the whole race by his sin, how much more the exalted person of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring salvation to all those in Him. Amen. There's a dissimilarity. While there's a comparison to be made, Jesus Christ in His person is superior to Adam. Verse, can't, can't dwell on it. I'm already in trouble. Verse 16, I'd love to dwell on it. Romans 5 is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible that plainly states the doctrine of salvation by grace alone that we believe. Beginning at verse 6 to verse 21, you can understand every phrase and apply it powerfully if you want to be convinced of the truthfulness of salvation by grace that we believe. Verse 16, And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Here the comparison is in quantity. Adam sinned once. Jesus Christ paid for not only his, but many more. It's rich. 
It's rich. Grace is rich. Adam's one sin condemned many. Jesus Christ not only paid for it, but for many more. Because grace is so rich, it's able to cover all our sin. As we sang earlier tonight, 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more. Now, I like those words, much more. Amen. And those much more was up in verse 15. Much more. They which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. If punishment of sin was conveyed to all those in Adam, how much more will God's gracious gift be conveyed to all His children that are in Christ? Here is the quality or the nature of the gift compared. If God was consistent in judgment, how much more is He going, much more is He going to apply the gift of righteousness and eternal life? And so what does Paul use? Much more. Is it rich? It is much more rich in this comparison. Verse 20. Do you know why we got Lewis? Do you know why we got the law of Moses? There's a reason that we're told in the Bible why God came down on Mount Sinai and gave the law to the nation of Israel. And it wasn't to give them a way to get to heaven. It was a set of laws that none of them could keep so that they would all know that they were sinners and needed Jesus Christ. That's why God gave Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Does everyone understand that? Those books were not given to see if any men could work their way to heaven. God already knew they couldn't. And those four books were to teach them that they were in a desperate condition needing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have verse 20. Now let's read it with understanding. Moreover, the law entered, Moses' law, that the offense might abound, that we might see how sinful we really are. But where sin abounded... Grace did much more abound. Is grace rich? Even when God brings the whole Old Testament to bear to show how sinful we are, guess what? Grace is still richer. Where sin abounded, because no one could keep all those commandments, grace did much more abound. Do you know what all this is? It's all a drama. Mm -hmm. Do you know for whose praise? The God of heaven. Amen. He brought the whole law in, knowing that it wasn't going to do anyone any good except himself, because it was going to show us how exceedingly sinful we are. But where sin abounded, by many, many offenses against the law of Moses, grace did much more abound. Amen. Verse 21. I like answering this question. Is it rich? Verse 21. That... As sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Adam's sin. How certain it, how certain is it that you're going to die? That is very certain. Because sin is reigning. What does it mean to reign? It means to be in power. It means to be in authority. It means to have control. Sin is in control of your life. Sin is in control of how long you're going to live. And it reigns unto death. Even so, what does it tell us? Might grace reign. I want to tell you about another reigning principle in this life. And that is grace 
It reigns. It controls. It directs. It is in authority and it is in power that not one of God's elect will miss eternal life. So whenever you think about the certainty of death and it frightens you, O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Because we know something that is rich that's going on at the same time. Grace is reigning for eternal life in Christ Jesus. That principle is just as powerful, more powerful, as you've already read, much more. Are you with me? Is it rich? It's rich. The grace of God is so rich. So when we sing, are those just syllables for you to pronounce? His rich and distinguishing grace? Or should we get excited about getting to that last line of the first verse? When Paul compared himself to the law of God, he came up wanting. And look what he said in Romans 7.24. With an exclamation point. Let's trust the Spirit of God on that. Someone would say, well, translators put it there. Oh, no. The Lord put it there. I believe that wholly. The day I back off the exclamation points, what are you going to back off tomorrow? And all I have to do is read the words and know that it deserves one. Right. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how rich grace is. When you're hopeless, grace brings hope. Yes. Paul was hopeless. If Paul was hopeless, I'm doubly hopeless. And grace brings hope. Second Corinthians 4.15 2 Corinthians 4.15 Paul's explaining his ministry. Chapter 4 is the chapter where he talks about being troubled on every side, yet not distressed, cast down but not destroyed. Why did Paul go through all of that? For the Corinthian saints. Here's his explanation. Verse 15. For all things are for your sakes. Everything I do is for the sake of you saints at Corinth and saints in other places that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. That when I preach and tell you about the abundant grace of God in saving your souls and to as many people as I can, from many voices and hearts, God receives greater glory. But what is it called in this verse? It's called abundant grace. Abundant grace. Is grace rich? It is abundant. So Paul was willing to spend himself in going everywhere to teach as many as he could about the abundant grace of God that through his preaching more praise would result heavenward toward the Lord. Chapter 8, same book. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. I used this a month ago for the Lord's Supper. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That... Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. The Lord Jesus Christ was rich, he became poor, that you who were poor under the condemnation of sin might be made rich, the heirs of heaven. Is grace rich? It's rich. It's God trading his riches for the poverty of this world and taking on your sins so that you who had all your sins 
could lay them aside in Christ and be rich as a justified child of God. Is it rich? Yes, it's rich. God sent His only begotten Son to lay down His life for us that we'd be delivered from our poverty. And isn't that a nice word for what we really were? Were we poor? We were under the condemnation of hell and couldn't do a thing for ourselves. That's poor. But He made us rich as the sons of God that cannot be lost. It's rich. It's very rich. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.16 2 Thessalonians 2.16 We're answering the question. Can we sing His rich grace and really believe it? Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. Is grace rich? Grace gives everlasting consolation. And good hope. That is wonderful. You know, this life, life is not a pretty thing. When you look at it in the flesh, life is not a pretty thing. We come into this world like a wild ass's colt. We live like one for a while. We run into trouble all our lives and then we die. You know, forgive my choice of illustrations, but it is said life's a bitch and then you die. And you know what? That's true. That's true from a natural standpoint. But do you know what we have through grace? Everlasting consolation for this little period of trouble down here because we've got everlasting peace and happiness in heaven and we've got good hope. Do you know what their hope is? Their hope is they're going to do something next year and then they're cut off and they never realize their hope. The hope is shattered. We have good hope. Do you know what kind of you know what good hope is? You're gonna get it. Good hope. You're gonna get it. Through grace. Grace is rich. Titus three seven. It says that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's that good hope. Justified by grace to be heirs of eternal life. Is grace rich? Yes it is. And then last in Hebrews 2.9 it says that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Jesus, not every man in the world, every man in Christ. Every man given to him to taste death for. Jesus tasted death for us. Now don't you, don't you think something light by that word tasted. That's the word of God playing with you to make you think about what Jesus Christ really did. Jesus died for us in death. He went to the cross and died for us. He did it for us. He did it by grace. Grace is rich. It's much more than sin. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And it's called the exceeding riches of His grace. In Ephesians 1.7 and Ephesians 2.7. But now we've got to ask the question, and the answer is short, how is it distinguishing? I go back to Genesis. When I'm reading through Genesis chapter 6, and God looked down on the earth, and God said the whole earth has corrupted itself in my sight. All the thoughts of men from their youth are continually evil. It repents me that I ever created them. I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. 
But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Is it distinguishing? One man found grace in the eyes of the Lord and the blessed God of heaven who has never even imagined doing anything wrong drowned every other inhabitant of this planet and he justly did it. And he saved one man, his wife, his three sons and their three wives because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It is distinguishing grace. I'll tell you one thing. I know a brother who would have sung on a big wooden boat in songs of sublime adoration and praise. Ye pilgrims for Zion who press, break forth and extol the great ancient of days, his rich and distinguishing grace. Do you know what it would have been like inside that ark? Hearing the wailing outside the ark? Do you know what it would have been like? The first moment you had to grab onto something. Are you all with me? Now, you know I have other ways of making you think about the ark, but think about this one. What are you doing when you have to grab onto something to hold on in the ark? Because it is lifted up from the earth. And when it was lifted up from the earth, did anyone have breathing apparatus to handle that? Or was the Lord suffocating the whole population of earth? It is hard for us to understand because there is a doctrine of the devil that is sown in our society that God is a grandfather in the sky made of cotton candy that would never do anything harmful to anyone, and that is a total lie. We have rebelled and hated God all of our lives, and our fathers did it before us, and their fathers before them, and their fathers before them, and God is just in suffocating the whole earth. Right. And God is just in sending men to hell. And He would be just if He sent us to hell. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The question is, is grace distinguishing? It picked Noah up. And God said, go in. And God closed the door. And God opened the windows of heaven. And that is not a fable. It is not a story. It is not a persuasive appeal to get you to do anything. It is a record of history of what God did to this rebellious race. But he saved Noah. He comes along and reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 33. And he said, For the Lord is gracious to whom he will be gracious. Is grace distinguishing? Mm -hmm. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. As Paul writes it in Romans 9.15, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is distinguishing. Ephesians chapter 1. You know these verses. Our children don't know them as well as you do. So patiently bear with them. You know that I have to teach all of you from top to bottom. Ephesians 1. Children, this is why we're in this church and not in other churches. Because we believe in the distinguishing grace of God. Amen. Most Baptist churches in this city would say that grace is rich. But they wouldn't say that grace is distinguishing. They would say that grace is available to all. And we would say grace is effective for the elect. 
Grace is applied to the elect. Grace was designed for the elect. And here's what it says in the Bible. Let me start with verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Isn't that what I just quoted to you? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. The Lord is gracious to whom He will be gracious. Exodus 33, 19. And so we have the very same thought right here in this fifth verse, that we are the sons of God by predestination. How do we become a child of God? God predestinated that Jesus Christ would pay the price for us to be taken out of the orphanage of sin and condemnation and made His children. And He did it according to the good pleasure of His will. That is distinguishing. When you distinguish something, you make a difference. You put one thing over here and another thing over there. You distinguish between them and make them separate and different. You divide and make a difference. That's what it means to distinguish. And the Lord made a distinguishing difference in mankind at the flood, and He made a distinguishing difference in men in salvation. Some are vessels of wrath to reveal His power in hell. Others are vessels of mercy to sing His praises and His grace for throughout eternity. Amen. Having predestinated us in the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Why did He make this choice? To the praise of the glory of His grace, because He wants two things praised about His grace. It is rich and it is distinguishing. And it is distinguishing because He chose us in Christ and predestinated us to the praise of the glory of His grace. If God's grace was offered to all, and the difference between heaven and hell was something you did, that would not be to the praise of the glory of His grace. That would be to the praise of your exercise of your free will. But it's to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. Not where He offered acceptance in the Beloved, nor where He offered to respond to you if you would accept the Beloved, but He made you accepted in the Beloved. I think they ask you where you go to school, Lewis, that if you'll accept Jesus Christ, then you can have eternal life. But can you read this verse with me? Right, look at that. Ephesians 1.6, the last half of it, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. He made us accepted in the Beloved by choosing us in Christ. Christ lived a perfect life for us, then died a perfect death for us, and God accepted us because of what Jesus did for us. That's salvation. He made us accepted in the Beloved. And the Beloveds, we're going to celebrate them right here. What He did for us. Verse 7, In that Beloved, in Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the the riches of His grace. Oh, now it's getting good. We've got the riches of His grace, but we've got the riches of His grace in a passage that's about His distinguishing grace. I like song. Have you figured out yet that I like number 33 in the old school hymnal? I want to extol the great ancient of days for his rich and distinguishing grace. There it is, Ephesians 1. I've already read Ephesians 2 to you. Verses 4 through 7 teach a very same, very similar things. Let's come over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's my last verse. 2 Timothy 1.
Paul wrote Timothy, private correspondence. Think about it. Brother Timothy, God hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Remember, grace doesn't allow any works, because we already answered the question, what is grace? Can't have any works. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Paul and Timothy knew that God had saved them by his grace, put their names in the book of life, eternal life and heaven were certain for them because of the distinguishing grace of God. Brethren, we do not fully grasp how much we earned and deserve hell because we do not know the holiness of the God that created the heavens and the earth. We think that he is like us, overlooking anything and most everything, but he doesn't. He has absolute standards of holiness and righteousness and justice. And as we sing in one of our songs, if he were to send us to hell, his righteous law approves it well. Grace gives us eternal life instead. Can we break forth? Can you break forth? Or are you going to mumble? Can we break forth and extol the great Ancient of Days, His rich and distinguishing grace, and then eat the Lord's Supper? Amen. Let's sing number 33 in the old school hymnal.